This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Eric Solomon, who is a fractional CMO at Blackbird and the CMO in residence at Novio. Eric is a really interesting guy who has a PhD in psychology from Northeastern University, which gives him a really interesting perspective. On this episode, Eric talks about storytelling, the fractional CMO model, the rise of digital, and much more. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And in on the other line, in sunny San Francisco, Lauren Vaccarello, how are things? Things are really good. I'm super excited about today's interview. Nice to have someone on the other side of the country. Yeah, as always. Across the uh, the great grass sea here, Eric, what's going on? So far, so good today. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm uh, super excited to talk to you both. Yeah, we are as well. So we're going to get into a bunch of Eric's background. He's done stints at some companies, you know, like Spotify, Google, Instagram, YouTube, and more. And we're going to talk about what being a CMO in residence is. Um, but first, Eric, how'd you get into marketing? Man, I wish uh, I wish I had a nice, clean, linear story for you. But uh, unfortunately, that's not how it's been. Um, I got into marketing in a pretty weird way. Um, I'm actually an academic by training. Um, so I got my PhD in psychology. I actually started that program 20 years ago from almost the date. Really, you know, went through the PhD program thinking, you know, for my whole life, I'm going to be a professor. I'm going to do this. You know, and I think probably partway in, I started to realize, you know, there might be some other stuff I could do with this. Still, I persisted and I ended up doing postdoctoral work. So after I got my PhD in the psychology of advertising, actually looking at how big tobacco had manipulated social scientists to get kids hooked on to smoking so we could figure out how to counter market to them. And I was like, you know what? This is really interesting stuff. And then um, as just as part of that research, I started interviewing folks that worked at ad agencies and eventually one of the heads of Goodby Silverstein and Partners in San Francisco said, how would you like to move over from academia to doing this? And I did that, you know, oh, 15 years ago or so and haven't looked back since. When you were working on the, the psychology behind uh, sort of the, the tobacco industry, what, what did you figure out? What did you learn about how to, how to counter it? <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Um, there was this big lawsuit that happened in 1998. Um, it was Minnesota sued the U.S. government. And basically every document that had ever been recorded in the tobacco industry had to be turned over. And UCSF, their medical school, actually has that all digitized. So as glamorous as it might sound, that research is actually pretty boring because it, it's basically being an archivist and going through everything just to see what people said, what people wrote, even on the back of napkins and matchbooks. And some of the stuff that we found, which is pretty nuts, is some very high up folks in marketing 
at uh, what was then called Philip Morris, but is now Altria, they were actually, you know, partially funding the say no to smoking campaign based on the very simple insight that if you tell kids not to do it, they're going to want to do more of it. And so we were trying to figure out how to do a little, I guess, what you call reverse psychology to, to figure out um, how could we get people, especially young people, just as interested by using some of that intel that we had. That's fascinating and super messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Man, that's crazy. What were some of those, uh, what was some of the counter messaging? You know, some of the counter messaging was stuff that was very, very localized, especially, you know, in, in markets that were, you know, like California and very small markets that were kind of out of home. And the messaging was just around the idea of, you know, trying to look, I guess, you know, cool without putting a message that smoking was part of it. And so it was more about the imagery that was used and the way that we countered it than it was about any specific messaging itself. It was just a way to kind of create an image that didn't sort of look like 50s movies with, you know, the cool hero smoking in them. I say, is it something like, you know, your parents smoke and they think it's totally fine. So you really, I mean, if you really want to do this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's as soon as you say, as soon as you say, it's parents approved. That's the last thing a kid wants to get involved with, right? I still feel that way in my forties. So it's interesting that you see some of the same stuff right now with you know e-cigarettes and the ads that you're seeing with uh, with how many. I mean, I don't. It's funny. I don't really see a lot of e-cigarette ads in general, but I see all the counter advertising kind of constantly now. It's pretty crazy, right? So, flash forward to, you know, when you get to YouTube. So, at this point in your career, you are working in. I mean, not super early days YouTube, but but early enough that like there's not a ton around partnerships creativity? What do content partnerships? What does all of this look like? Can you share like, you know, why you joined YouTube and what you were excited about working on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I spent, after I was at Goodby's Silverstein Partners, I moved over to another ad agency, Venables Bell and Partners for a couple of years. And, you know, it was around 2010, 2011. And as you said, YouTube launched in 2006, but the idea of brands using digital video wasn't really on the radar until a couple of years later, maybe 2008, 2009 at the earliest. And so by the time I joined, it had, you know, gone to a place where a lot of brands were simply just taking whatever they did on TV and just throwing that on digital and, you know, on YouTube and checking the box and saying, great, we're digital now. And we had to come along and say, you know what, like digital video is a totally new thing how can we think about creativity in a different way? And how can we help the world's biggest brands develop creative that is specific for YouTube? And I was just excited about the idea. I've always been interested in emerging technology and emerging media. And I just knew that digital video was going to be the future, primarily because I'd just seen what was happening with uh, television stuff. And I was like, this is all beginning to look exactly the same. So something's got to change. And so I was just excited to jump in and really help brands navigate this new universe. What were some of the, what were some of the campaigns that you got to work on or some of the, the videos you got to work on? I love, and I'm, I'm completely with you, the, the emerging technology when it comes out and seeing how something like digital video can be used for a brand. I remember being so excited by it when it first 
started to appear in the world. No, I mean, it, it, it was a really exciting time. And I think it continues to be with the innovation that's still going on in that space with YouTube and beyond. You know, there were so many, I was there for four and a half years. And so the number of, number of brands and uh, individual leaders that we touched during that time was just so great. I think my favorite stuff to work on overall was the stuff where we got to partner with the emerging influencer scene. So, you know, that was pretty new at the time with the idea of people whose entire income was generated from becoming an influencer on this new platform. And we did some really cool stuff with Land Rover on um, a travel series where we got an influencer in the space to kind of drive a Land Rover across country and document his travel journey. That was super, super fun to work on. But um, it was also, you know, during the time of this, uh, the Sochi Olympics and got to do a lot of stuff with all the major brands around what the Olympics activation was going to be with YouTube at the center of it. And so I wish I could pinpoint one, but I worked on so many fantastic brands and so many campaigns during that time. I, I just, they're all a, a delicious swirl in my head. Did you find that moment where everybody started talking about pivot to video? Because I think that that was one of the big kind of moments over the last few years where I think everybody collectively kind of started saying this, like, you know, like long form is dead, written word is dead, and everyone was trying to pivot to video and it became this kind of hot button, um, kind of triggering thing that was mostly not true, <clears throat> except for the fact that people were developing more robust video capabilities. Uh, just curious to your thoughts on that on the, on the sidelines there. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I think it's more about the freedom that digital video offers you. So it's not even that long form is dead. Some of the most successful stuff on YouTube is quite long. Um, it's a matter of not being boxed into that 30-second or 60-second thing or that one-page or two-page layout that the industry was trapped in for so long. And it finally felt like this moment of freedom. It was terrifying for people, and I think for some people it still is. But at the end of the day, having that freedom just to break out of the box to not do what we've always done, I think felt quite liberating and for me still does. What were some of the creative ways that people were trying to use video back then? You know, specifically YouTube had so much user-generated content and these like personalities that were created, broadcast, and then ultimately turned into like actual channels, like people who were amateurs that turned into professionals. I'm curious to see if there's any creative things that, you know, those influencers that you were talking about that brands were doing that was like cutting edge at the time. Yeah, I mean, I can think a lot of, you know, what we saw are a couple of different trends happening at the same time, which is a lot of brands, some of which you can probably think of right away, but we can talk about, became content creators in and of themselves. GoPro is a great example. GoPro is a brand that, you know, about 70% of their own marketing was from user-generated content. So they had the brilliant idea of the best way to market that product is to get people that are using it and already posting to YouTube ask them for permission to use it in their communications, and then change themselves into a content production engine, which was great to see. And you saw um, brands like Red Bull doing the same thing, really um, you know, tapping into that cultural zeitgeist. And then, you know, so there were some brands that I think of in that, I guess what I think of as the creation space. Then there were brands that were doing their, a really good job of curating content. So we're saying like, listen, maybe we don't have anything cool to create on our own, but we can go out there as, people that have our finger on the social pulse and go ahead and try to curate content that's going to be really interesting for people. 
But some of my favorite stuff was the collaborations that brands would do. So I really loved, um, back in the day, there was this guy, Marquis Scott, that did this really funky dancing. He looked like, like liquid gold when he was dancing. And he did these partnerships with Coke, Audi. Um, I'm forgetting some of the other brands he worked with. But it was really this current way for brands that didn't have a lot of their own equity to tap into this influencer equity to present an image that they probably wouldn't have otherwise had access to. Did you have a passion for or like a background in anything video when this was all starting? I mean, was there was this something that was new to your career that you were just interested in or, or were you kind of working on this when you were in agency world? No, I mean, I think it goes even before that. I think, um, you know, my personality is one of these people that I, I don't think I'm capable of doing one thing at any one time. I've always got a lot of different things going on for better or for worse. And even when I was going through graduate school, I was involved in sort of the, you know, the visual artistic space. I did some stuff like DJing and some other things that really, you know, were more visual or artistic in nature. Um, I'd say, you know, with video in particular, there just weren't that many opportunities to do much with video in the world before digital video lowered the bar of entry for schmoes like me who don't know how to work a production camera. And, you know, I don't have access to fancy equipment and I certainly um, don't have very good aptitude for photography, but you know what, like the digital world makes that okay. And the, the lower bar of entry made it much more exciting for me to jump in and have a way to express creativity in a way that I hadn't had access to before. So why'd you make the jump from, uh, from YouTube into the amazing world of music and Spotify? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think you might've just captured it right there. The amazing world of music, you know, I think um, to some extent, you know, Spotify was on my list of up and coming brands that I wanted to be attached to for as long as it's existed. I think I, you know, I'd like to say that I was one of the first users of Spotify in the US. Um, I probably wasn't, but I like to at least claim it. Music's been a, a gigantic part of my life for, for a long time. And when I heard that Spotify was looking for somebody to lead the Spotify brand globally, I jumped at the opportunity and was really ready for a change. Um, four and a half years at YouTube was absolutely fantastic, but the opportunity to take on something truly in-house and to build something new um, was just an opportunity I couldn't turn down. When we, so we just had Seth Farman on. We have that, did two hours with Seth and, uh, and talked about just all of the amazing things, you know, of why he chose to be involved in Spotify. And I think, you know, it's still such early days for that company, obviously. But when you were there, it was really early days on how brands engage on the platform. Can you talk about like how companies wanted to leverage the Spotify audience? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, for I think the longest time, it's been confusing for brands maybe less so now with the rise of podcasts, but it's been confusing to brands to figure out how to evolve an audio presence beyond the old school radio model. And I think that the idea that Spotify is a platform, you know, it's always been the ambition for Spotify to own the ear, not just to be a music platform, 
but to really be something bigger than that and to be the company that stands for sound and for the ear overall made it really an attractive opening for brands to say, this is an opportunity to do something different. And Spotify, you know, has been experimenting with that, I think for, for quite a while. And obviously with the newest, newer acquisitions of folks like Gimlet will be continuing to build equity in that space. Um, I think it's continues to be an exciting brand and a brand to watch. Lauren, did you ever use like radio or, or any of the, um, you know, like Spotify or Pandora or anything like that when you were when you were buying ads? You know, we were we were early days. I remember um the first time there was any sort of digital radio, we were thinking, Okay, NPR is the obvious choice. Should we do something there? What should we do with a with a Pandora? Are there certain channels we could sponsor and kind of digging in digging into that? Um I think now with where radio is there's such better targeting than there was, you know, five or 10 years ago when everything was first really, first really coming out. And it's also just what people are sort of on all the time now is, is digital radio. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously we, we talk about podcasting all the time here, but I think just this idea that, you know, on demand, the shift of ad spend from on demand is just going to continue moving, you know, the $18 billion in terrestrial radio is going to continue in, in the U.S. alone is going to just massively shift into platforms like Spotify and, and podcasting and all that stuff. Was that something that you were starting to see? Like, what were those conversations like when you were talking to, to brands and to companies about, you know, hey, why they should choose on demand versus not? No, I mean, you know, I think that that conversation is one that is still continuing to evolve to some extent. But, you know, I think, you know, the idea, especially as podcasts started to be, you know, more in the mix is this idea of really taking that native approach and saying that there's an opportunity to integrate your brand in a way that's not as disruptive because there's just so much crap out there that's just interrupting what we're trying to enjoy and the beauty of a lot of audio advertising, right, is that it's integrated flawlessly into that content in a way that doesn't feel disruptive, but feels contributive to that content, if that's a word. And at the end of the day, like, I think that's always been what brands have wanted to do is to be part of the conversation, not be total disruptors and interrupters of a conversation. Yeah, it's a key point, right? I mean, I think that that's Ultimately, I mean, I think Seth Godin has a has a piece about this, about how, you know, marketing for a long time has been about interruption. And when you shift away from interruption into actually helping add value, that's where um, brands can see, you know, long-term sustained growth. What about, you know, your time at Google and Instagram? I mean, was that something that, you know, obviously two different companies would love to love to learn you know, more about kind of what you were working at those two. Yeah. Um, the move back to Google and I say back to Google because obviously YouTube and, and Google are, are integrated, but the move back to Google was really an opportunity to, to jump on a new trend that we were seeing in the video space. And I was pretty excited about, which is a hot topic in marketing even now, which is automation or programmatic and thinking about, especially with video, how do you think about machine learning in video 
and what that does to the creative process. And I have, you know, a lot, this is currently a lot of what I'm talking about these days is how machine learning and artificial intelligence is changing the way that we tell stories. But Google has been and continues to be really on the forefront of what's happening in the machine learning and automation space. And I just thought it was a really incredible opportunity to be able to sink in and really learn more about it and contribute what I know to the conversation. Um, so that was, you know, one experience. Instagram is just, you know, continues to be on fire from a user or consumer perspective. And from a business perspective, so I was the head of global business marketing for Instagram. And from a business perspective, it's one of those places where I think it's something like 80% of people organically follow a brand on Instagram because it's a place where people let businesses in and they expect businesses and brands to be part of the ecosystem. And it just seemed like a really cool environment to push the boundaries on creativity with emerging forms of media like stories or Instagram TV, IGTV, um, and just really learn more about how to use different media formats in ways that had never been explored before. So again, I feel really fortunate to have both of those opportunities for two very different reasons and different perspectives. And I, how do you think the, your initial sort of training in, in psychology helped you as you kind of jumped into all these roles of here's this new potential usage for technology, here's this new potential medium for advertising. How do you see the experience as a end of training in psychology leading to a lot of your work in, in these roles with these amazing companies? It's a great question. And it's obviously one, you know, I try to disconnect the narrative that I have about it from, from the reality, which is, you know, academic, I just want to dispel any myths, like getting a PhD in research psychology is probably one of the most boring things you can do. It's incredibly data heavy, <laughs> working on really low level stuff. But the fact that I've taught statistics in college, obviously, you know, doesn't make me scared of data. I'm not going to say I'm an expert in it. There are people that make their whole entire livings on it, but I'm fluent in, in it because of that psychology background. You know, people assume that I just, you know, kind of talk to people laying down on couches as a, as a psychologist, but it was quite the opposite. It was very, very low level research psychology. So that's one way. And then of course the other way is one that means a lot to me, which is at the end of the day, Psychology is about understanding the human mind and about human beings. I studied cognitive psychology. It's about understanding the brain and how people make the decisions they do or how they rationalize the decisions that they don't know that they're making. And I think that that to some extent is at the core of what advertising is, is trying to appeal to people's emotional sense, knowing that they're going to rationalize their behavior at the end of the day. I think it's super cool. I mean, I... I honestly, until you went through that, I would have never thought how sort of data heavy going through the whole research perspective, uh, sort of research and becoming a, a PhD in psychology would be, but it makes a ton of sense. And it's this great blend of kind of data and research with the human psyche and creativity and everything that has to come from it. No, exactly. I think people like to glamorize the idea of, um, you know, getting a PhD is just, you know, something that seems uh, just academic in a lot of ways and doesn't really have application to the world. But I think I've done my best, even when I was in graduate school and going through it, to try to make the tie from something that is 
really low level and hard to explain to people to something that actually matters to pop culture and to the world. So I've always been interested in that connection, even if it's not immediately apparent. So you've talked in the past about this idea of creating a fan-centric brand. What is a fan-centric brand and like, why do you think that's so important? To some extent, all brands should be thinking about customers or users first. A lot of folks say it, not everybody lives and breathes it, but the brands that are truly fan-centric are ones that have deep empathy for their customers or their users, really listen and observe the behavior that their users or customers are doing, and then find a way to reflect it back to them in a non-creepy way. And that's really what I mean by fan-centric is being an incredible listener on an organizational level and being an incredible storyteller to say, we've heard you, we're listening to you, we care about you, and here's what we're going to do as a result of it. And I love it. And I think more and more brands need to take this this customer-centric approach. And I, I like how you kind of make customer-centric and fan-centric and make the link between the two of them because if you are truly truly customer-centric and truly care about them, that's how you're going to build this degree of advocates and fans, whether you're you know, a B2B company or a B2C company. Really knowing what your customers care about and figuring out how you can add value is what you do to, to get those sort of really excited promoters. I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, people, when they hear the word fan, especially, I, I spoke about this a lot in the context of Spotify, people immediately go to the music fanatic. And that is not the only definition of fan as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that includes those people that are totally fanatics for your brands, but there's usually not that many of those for any brand. Even the, the most popular and most hip brands don't have tons of those people, but it's what is the ecosystem of the fans? Because even people that are light users or light listeners are still fans. Brands are fans. Partners are fans. And that's the ecosystem of fan centricity that I'd like to, to really espouse. What is your version of storytelling? How do you approach telling a story? And what do you think that it is important for brands to be able to tell stories more effectively? Yeah, I mean, I think about storytelling a lot. Um, one of the things that I do when I'm not thinking about marketing is thinking about writing. Um, it's a big passion of mine. Um, and storytelling is a big part of my life. And, you know, I think um, it's really easy to tell a story. What's harder to do is to tell one that makes you vulnerable and comes from a place of true authenticity and I think when I think about my personal approach to storytelling, whether it's speaking or writing or thinking about a brand, it is about saying at some level, we're all human. Brands are part of that human ecosystem. And you have to be real and you have to let yourself be vulnerable and maybe go to places that you don't feel comfortable going because otherwise your story isn't differentiated and doesn't feel believable. What about this idea of like hyper telling that you've talked about in the past? Is that something that you came up with that you borrowed? Uh, where did this come from? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I won't take uh, sole credit for it, but a group of us um, on the zoo, which is the team that I worked on while I was a 
YouTube, talked a lot about this idea of hypertelling a fair amount, which is essentially this idea of, and I still think this is true, of our job, any job, whether you're speaking or creating a piece of communication, or even at this point in time, creating a piece of content for the mass market on TV, your job isn't to get up and say a monologue and just go and tell something to somebody. Your job is to leave it open-ended so that people do something with it. And that's really the idea behind hypertelling is we're no longer storytellers where there's a passive audience that's sitting down, listening to us, gathering around the fire, telling a story about our brand. And if you're going to do that, you're not going to interest very many people. But if you say, you know what, we don't have all the answers. We don't know what's right. We're going to leave it open for people to contribute to that story in some way. That's hypertelling because people are going to do something with it, riff on it, um, remix it, do something interesting with that content. And that's the world we live in now. Is there any brands that you think particularly do this really well? Yeah. I mean, I think that there have been a lot of brands that have opened up their story so that other people can participate. Ones that come to mind instantly are brands like REI. So, you know, REI stands for outdoors, stands for a commitment to the outdoor space and making products to fit every outdoor environment. And the way that they've taken their story about who they are and opened it to the world is by creating opt out on Black Friday and saying, we want to hear about what you're doing to not be indoors and not be buying stuff on the day that you're supposed to be buying stuff, but rather experiencing our brand and experiencing our ethos in a way that we can help tell your story, customer. And I think that they've done a really good job of not saying, hey, we're about the outdoors, but saying, you know, giving something, a call to action for somebody to do something with. And that, for me, is a great example of hypertelling. And there's such a deep sort of authenticity to that and to that story and to that brand behind, behind REI. And I honestly, I, I feel like I didn't know that about them for Black Friday, but it just, it makes so much sense with who they are. And I think that's something that every brand can really take from and learn from is not just the, the element of storytelling, but having that amount of authenticity for who you are as a company, what your values stand for, what your customers' values stand for, and how do you make sure you you really embrace that and deliver on that sort of in every touch point? I think that's exactly right. I mean, not only is authenticity, but they also explore that vulnerability by they close all of their retail stores on that day, giving every employee the opportunity to take the day off and explore the outdoors as well, which, you know, is a financial hit to them. But I think they really understand the potential, their true north as a brand. They understand what their operating system is. And that's a lot of, in fact, what we do at Blackbird is help brands get to that operating system so that they can start to unlock it and start to be able to tell their stories as well. That's awesome. And you know what? That, so much of that is the reason that I'll spend a little bit more money buying any of my sort of outdoor camping gear at REI or any of my my activities at R, at REI versus I could probably buy it a lot less expensive somewhere else, but it just feels better to get it from REI and it feels 
like they actually care about the community. Exactly. So let's get into, you know, what does it mean to be a CMO in residence? What are you working on at Blackbird? And, um, you know, why is this so exciting for you? Yeah. Um, the CMO in residence model is not something that I, I've seen a lot of places. And it actually came about in conversation with the CEO of Blackbird, Ross Martin, who spent many years at Viacom and has recently branched out. Um, Blackbird is only, I think, a year plus old. And I came to him and we had a great conversation about this idea that these days, especially for large organizations, the role of a CMO is at best nebulous and at worst untenable. And by that, I mean that job can mean 500 different things depending on what organization is you're talking to and what it is that they're looking for at any given time. So a CMO, yeah, can be in charge of marketing, but may also be in charge of growth and revenue and the technology budget. And the idea that one person can do that job in these large organizations becomes a really difficult proposition. And then on the other end, there's a lot of direct-to-consumer brands in the startup space that are coming up that need marketing, but may not be ready for a CMO, or they might think they need one, but they don't. And so what does it look like to provide fractional CMO services to both these large brands that have gaps in knowledge of what marketing can look like and how can we help them shore up that knowledge? And then also on the other end, these more startup brands who haven't even thought about what their marketing strategy should be or what their brand stands for. And a lot of my time is spent on both ends of that spectrum. I'd say if I had to choose where I'm most excited, it is working with the younger startup brands who are just getting into saying, wow, we scaled, we built this product, there's some traction, but we don't know what our brand stands for. And we don't have an operating system for how we're going to communicate who we are in the marketplace. I, I love this. And I think I'm starting to see this trend and maybe it's just in the sort of in the startup world as well, where you have people like, like you going in as a fractional CMO or the CMO in residence idea, because to your point, so many of these startups need, need that. They need the brand help. They need the deeper strategy piece, but they also need a lot of hands on keyboards, a lot of work, just jumping in and getting started. And you can't necessarily afford both the here's the long-term strategist who's going to do all this incredible brand work, but we also need to crank out a bunch of stuff today. So having this idea of a fractional CMO or someone coming in and helping with the long-term planning, helping with the strategy piece, helping with all the brand work while you still also have people that are, you know, going to be more of the hands-on keyboard in the company, but at the same time, I just think it's such a smart model right now. No, I mean, thank you. I agree. And I think, I, I do think like Blackbird, I, I agree, we're seeing more of it, but I do think Blackbird's doing a great job of positioning it in a, in a different way. You know, I think what's happening, especially in the startup places, rightfully so, these folks are hiring a lot of growth and performance marketers right away that maybe because of their training or because of where they've been, don't really understand brand building. And then they'll scale with that thinking that that's the only part of the marketing puzzle. And then they'll realize like, wait a minute, <laughs> there's more to this than just 
you know, figuring out how to acquire customers and, you know, tweaking creative to see what works. There's a lot bigger picture and startups can scale very, very quickly to a point where they, they're suddenly 50 people and they don't have that yet. Oh, absolutely. And the, one of the many soapboxes that I stand on right now is the, if all you do is think about demand and think about performance and, you know, this is all I care about is how I get that lead, how I get that customer right now. And to your point, you're not thinking long-term. You're not thinking on the brand side. You're not thinking about category creation. You're not thinking about how we evolve this over time. What you're going to find is a lot of really quick, really short-term success because you have just nailed that sort of demand gen engine, but you're going to wake up one day and you've dried the well and you don't know, well, where do I go next? And Am I in the right industry? Is this the right messaging? Do I have the right brand? And by the time that happens and you drive the well, it's a lot of work to have to go in and put all of that effort into the brand piece. And the more you can think about brand and demand in parallel, the, the better long-term success you'll have for the company. That is absolutely right. Um, and not only that, but then you can get into the whole can of worms around measurement and making sure that you have the right systems in place that you can actually measure long-term value by building the right cohorts to be able to do that. And, you know, if you're just focused on short-term gains, you're going to lose sight of that LTV and that's going to be a problem in the long run. A hundred, hundred percent. And more and more companies and businesses need to start thinking about what is that, what is that lifetime value? And again, how are we, like, you got to hit your numbers today, but how do you plan for long-term and make sure you are attracting the right kinds of customers and that'll be with you for, you know, for the long haul. And then I'm going to jump in real quick. I love you guys. And I actually really wish I could stay on this part of the conversation. Um, I have to catch a train. It's all good. We're almost out of time anyway. So okay, <laughs> cool. have a good week. Right. See you Thank later. you. Why do you think content partnerships are important for brands to be able to do? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. To some extent, partner uh, content partnerships have always been part of the ecosystem, even from the dawn of advertising. But it's really amped up in the digital space because of the need to create lots and lots of content and to become more of that content engine. And it goes back to some of what we were talking about before, where as a brand, there's you know, essentially three ways that you can think about generating that content. You can create your own, which if you're a big brand and you have tons of money and you know what you're doing and you've got a great team and a great agency, go ahead and you can do that. But more and more people don't have the, the ability to really do that quickly for the digital landscape. You know, The idea of curating content is interesting to become a curator of it and to say what is out there and how do we build a brand around that but that doesn't do much for originality and you can't continue to build equity as a brand by just curating other people's content. And so that leaves you with saying, okay, like the pace of the digital world is really fast. We've got to create content to keep our users engaged. The best way that we can do that is to find people who are aligned with our values as a brand and are able to be champions in an authentic, real way and that actually enjoy doing it and can probably sell our brand better than we do because they have a built-in audience and a bigger way to reach people in a more engaging light. 
Yeah, that's you nailed it. I mean, I think that that is the power of those partnerships is that it gives you an arm's length distance from talking directly to your audience. And I think that so much of what we have tried to build over this last decade with Facebook pages, with, you know, our, um, our social channels, we tried to build one on like, be able to, a way to be able to talk with our fans one-to-one. But what we didn't realize was like, that isn't actually the best way to talk to your fans one-on-one. It's the best way to listen to your fans is through social channels. And that having a consistent dialogue in a way that is like predictable and repeatable and high quality or low quality, depending on what, what the type of thing that you're doing is with content. And it comes with a level of professionalism and thought and nuance that, you know, having someone else be able to do that is probably what most people need to be able to do. Like you said, if you have the budget and the money and you want to build the team, you know, if you want to build the 200 person creative team, like absolutely like have at it. But just a lot of companies, um, a lot of our listeners, you know, don't have those type of resources and you need to find the person who can evangelize your product in the right way that feels authentic. I think that's exactly right. And more and more that quote unquote micro influencer space where it's not necessarily these big price tag influencers. And that's totally okay because increasingly your production quality in the digital space is not expected to be super polished. And in fact, it looks weird when it is. And so it's better in some respects to find somebody that's maybe not as well known who really aligns with your brand and is able to make content cheaply for you in a way that feels authentic and current with how people post content these days. All right, let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like marketing automation with Pardot, you can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing with the world's number one CRM. Fast and easy questions. Eric, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? The most fun app right now, I'm going to be really vulnerable with you and say it's it's Wordscapes. It's a word game and it absolutely I'm addicted to it. And I wish I wasn't saying that, but it's just true. That's all good. Love it. What is your favorite vacation spot? Favorite vacation spot was hiking in the Italian Alps, the Dolomites. What do you do for fun? <laughs> I, I, what don't I do for fun? I feel like uh, that is my MO in life. How about the number one thing that you were excited about for the future of marketing? Number one thing is how we are going to work with AI slash the robots to augment creativity. So it's not like the robots are taking over. It's how do we figure out how we're going to best partner with them to make creativity more awesome than it is today. What would be the campaign that you were the most proud of in your career? That is a tough one. If I were to go back and say the campaign I'm most proud of is when we repositioned Intel as the sponsors of tomorrow and we showed these dorky engineer rock stars at Intel in a totally new light. It was so fun to work on. What about the campaign that was the biggest headache? (laughs) Biggest headache. 
Um, probably um, creating a stories ad campaign for the, you know, advertising community as an Instagram stories ad. A lot of headache. Oh, yeah, that's pretty tough. What would be your advice for that up and coming startup that doesn't have a marketer yet on the team of why they, why you think they might be beneficial to have a fractional CMO or a CMO in residence or something like that? My advice would be not to think of building a brand or building your true North star or what we call a belief system. Don't build that too late. Don't think that that's a luxury item that you have to wait to build until you've reached X point because a lot of that isn't just about marketing. It's how you run your entire venture or startup organization. And that will really help you unlock and grow the potential of your brand in ways you haven't thought of if you start there. What would be your best advice to a first time CMO? Absolutely. I'd say first and foremost, having seen and worked with a lot of CMOs hand in hand is to stop necessarily thinking as a marketer and start to think as a general leader. And that really requires putting on a new hat and thinking a lot about your vision and how you're going to communicate that vision and about what you're going to do to stay kind of open and curious as a leader, as opposed to closed or defensive as a leader and really getting out of your marketing box and thinking more about what you're going to do to foster the next generation of leaders. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate having you and, uh, and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. 
the speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.